This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. It was hard. People did not yet understand a lot of the impact of childhood trauma. If I had lived in a different era, I'd have been a different person. Maybe I'd have, I was I had a different mother. I don't know. I can only know what I know. Well, happy October. I feel like once, you know, this month hits, it's finally fall. Like, it's officially football season. We are in it. We are in it for the long haul. And so much exciting sports news to talk about. We're going to go in deep on the Fair Pay-to-Play Act that California just passed. Gavin Newsom, the governor, uh, was able to sign it on LeBron James's show on HBO, which is pretty nuts. But, hey, it's 2019. Anything can happen. And Lauren Plum is here to debate with me the pros and cons of receiving revenue as a collegiate athlete in California. Um, of course, we both went to Oregon, and but Lauren and I are both California kids. Plus, an incredible guest joins the show today, Julie Heldman, a legend in the tennis community. She's one of the original nine. Uh, if you've seen that iconic picture of the nine women holding up the dollar sign for signing one dollar to a woman's tennis pro contract, you know who the original nine are. She's recently come out with a book about her experience playing on the tour, which she was previously number two in America, ranked number five in the world. But there's a crazier story beyond the surface. Her mother, Gladys Heldman, was one of the most influential women in tennis. She started World Tennis Magazine and officially launched the women's own circuit. But there was so much more going on at home than we even saw. Um, so Julie's here to tell her story, tell us about her experience. Um, she's an incredible woman, an Olympian. Her accolades go on and on. And of course, big shout out to Quick Track. If you guys are not on the app yet, go download it now. It's free in your app store, especially for all those California college athletes out there who are going to be getting paid in 2023. Well, you're going to need a way to do it and protect yourself legally. Quick Track is the way to get it done. You can create and sign a contract through the mobile app and get paid. Plus, if you want to promote your own freelancer services, there's an easy way to do that through the app. Go download the Quick Track app today. Quick Track spelled Q U I K T R A C T. Quick Track. All right, so Lauren's back. Uh, thoughts on California college athletes starting to get paid in 2023? There's still, like, it's been very basic what's happened. I mean, it's huge. It's everything, but it's just a very beginning bill that's going to snowball into force a lot of things to happen. Yeah, I definitely have a snowball effect on the rest of uh, the country and the NCAA. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens, but good for uh, our governor, Gavin Newsom, that he uh, made this happen. And how cool that he did it on LeBron. I show know. Too. Like, that was such a big move. Like, what? Yeah, that was a serious thought, power move. I thought that that was like a joke. I wasn't sure. Like, I'm like, is this is this for real? Is this really happening? Right. Is this legal? I mean, if you're going to sign a bill on about sports, might as well do it on the man, the myth, the legend. Totally. His own show. So. But it is funny, you know, to think about how um, to think about how passionate LeBron is with this bill passing because it, he didn't go to college. But he probably thinks, hey, like I would have thought about it. I would have tried to at least you know right. um make the move make some money and help my mom out if this were an option for me back in the day i would have spent one or two years 
doing right. that if, you know, if I could before I would have gone to the league. Right. And I'm sure a ton of people are in similar with you know, a similar passage he did. So yeah, it was awesome that he's totally on board. A lot of athletes are backing him. Um, I mean, it's cool. He had Diana Trazzi on the show. She was talking about how, mm-hmm. you know, she's her jersey's still getting sold at UConn and all those things. And but there's nothing she can do about it, you know, because she already signed her life away. Um, oh, that's so true. Gosh, that's yeah. so, everybody thinks, okay, uh, the football players, basketball players, yeah, like those are your prized possessions at most universities. But what about the rest of the sports? What about our, you know, men's soccer players, swimmers, the rest of women's sports, people that are not maybe as ho- high profile athletes who are still affected. You know, that's kind of going to be that's going to be where it's really interesting to see how this comes into play because will right. a small car car dealership or even nail salon want to help sponsor a local athlete that might have come from their hometown right. and help them out just because, you know, they know the person, but it has nothing to do really with, you know, their talent I mean, definitely make day-to-day life a little easier at least it's not even ever in the back of your mind that like hey i can take this free lunch or i can do this and that and not even have to worry about it but i think it's just the very beginning like they're saying the people can get paid off of their likeness and their image no yeah their image and their life athletic ability yeah, so and- it's gonna definitely only affect the superstars the most and i don't think it's gonna trickle down for a couple more years or until people really want to get on board with like, I mean, it's the same overseas, you know, like I don't make as much as a men's basketball player, even though I'm in the first league in Germany and all this stuff, because more of the sponsors, uh, basketball is a big sport, you know? So if basketball is their second sport behind soccer, volleyball is maybe their third or fourth. So naturally because of the country's, you know, ranking in sports slash I'm still a woman. So it's, still tough over here even really yeah I mean it's it's life you know it's I mean look at the WNBA versus the NBA I mean they're still fighting that fight I think yeah their salary cap is like what uh, it's like a a 40th or something yeah yeah it's crazy like I think the highest paid girls in the league are like right over 100 150 yeah Yeah. it's, it's really ridiculous so to be the best women's player and your sport in the entire world and to get paid that in the best league is, is really tough, you know, but it's, if you look at the, uh, the revenue from the league and all that stuff, I mean, still they're not getting paid the same percentage and that's what they're fighting for. But Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think that same thing is going to have that same effect in the NCAA, like those sports that are bringing in money, the jerseys they sell to the superstars. And those are the guys that are going to get paid and they deserve to, you know, like they train their, good at their sport they should be able to get money off of video games and ticket sales and all that stuff because NCAA racked in close to I mean 14 billion dollars I saw like universities and TV deals and all that stuff it's crazy you know like that's and the athletes are getting paid a free education which is awesome but it's not enough you know well and correct me if I'm wrong but I know that Oregon and play like playing at Oregon for you was a huge platform and that was kind of your big superstar moment how would things change for you if you were able to you know be positively impacted by the fair pay to play act at that point honestly it would not have affected women's sports as much because women's uh sports don't even generate right very much money at all so unless they specifically put like for some reason but individuals going out and signing autographs right 
Right. And like, technically maybe you could charge for that or something, but like, I mean, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't, but there had been other job offers and things like, Hey, can you babysit my kid for like 60 bucks an hour? Or like, here, let me take you to lunch. Let me do this. Like, Oh, you go into the, whatever, a local restaurant. And like, Oh my God, you're on the volleyball team. Free, free meals. So little stuff like that would have been awesome. But I know that it's going to, probably honestly separate even more out like the woman. From I know the that's what scares me. Yeah. Like they, they did say title nine is going to be affected and for sure, like it, it will be, but I mean, at the end of the day, not all the guys sports no. are going to get paid the same. There's going to be super. I mean, think about it. I mean, we went to right. one of the biggest track schools in the country, track town USA, but yet I would still say that football at the time that we were there ruled the school. Okay. So we were there and probably, um, Michael James and Kenyon Barner and those guys that they had their jersey sales, they would be profiting so exactly. much. Maybe like the linemen and the special teams got like they probably wouldn't get paid jack unless it was some bill that specifically stated like right. the athletes deserve a certain percentage of the revenue, which I don't there's so many kinks that need to be worked out. Yeah, in- because they're not employees of the university. And I think that that's not what's cl- completely clear in this bill is people don't understand. Like, no, they're not going to get a salary. No, they're not employees right. of the right. school. It's generating, I mean, it's this, their whole likeness. It's generating yeah. revenue off of themselves. Right. And I always said before this bill even passed, I said, like, if you're the superstar or they want to do this, that, and with your image and your jersey, I think that whatever percentage should be put in an account for you yes. after college. That way you don't. And that's a safer way to do it. Right. And the NCAA could have passed that or done something with that, knowing that eventually this, that each state is going to push for, you know, this type of bill and they could have maybe got out in front of it, but they fought so hard against it and were so um, adamant on, you know, keeping out. And I mean, their words was just saying, keeping, you know, the even level playing field, but Ever kids are getting paid anyways, like Louisville, exactly uh, basketball oh programs, football programs. There's so mm-hmm. many. Everyone's getting paid, so it might as well, you know, make it in a legal manner so that you know everyone can uh, not have to do all these things behind closed doors because it's going to happen regardless. Yeah, but I think exactly what you said, Lauren, that we should pay. Sure, they should be compensated, but put the money in a secure account so kids aren't going out and buying Lamborghinis and, you know, like, right. spending, like you don't know spending, what to do with your money. Yet. You don't know what to do with 19, your money when you're 18 right. years old. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I didn't, yeah. you know, like there was no way I knew what to do with, I did not know how to manage my money. No way. Right. Like if I was able to generate that kind of income at that point, I would have been so grateful that somebody was like, hell no, we are holding you off until this point. Right. You know? Yeah. Or, you know, at least these kids that, are selling out stadiums like I always think about football is the first thing I think about and yeah they get a free education but they're graduating with four concussions like torn labrums and totally like their bodies yep. are broken and now they're their insurance just, policy right and now they're just supposed to go out and live the rest of their life with all these problems and stuff and have nothing to show for it but I mean for education yeah but I'm is your body worth a free education for four years um you know so I mean, like I said, my brother had a medically retired. He played football. Um, my dad is still severely going through the effects of CT, you know, and so little stuff like that, like, hey, at least I have something to show for it, put my body on the line for this team, for this whatever, but I'm going to be able to get compensated at least after. That was always what I said, but now that this is happening, 
now it's going to be during. But there's a lot of people that agree, Lauren. I mean, there are so many people, athletes, there are so many former college athletes that are speaking yeah. out who, you know, you would expect, hey, I would have loved to gotten paid during that time and be able right. to spend and, and give things back to my parents and such. But no, a lot of them are speaking out same sort of way and saying, I wish that it could go into an account and keep me responsible because also how does it affect team dynamics? Think about that. Yeah. If some guys are generating millions and millions of dollars and all of a sudden, like, you know, like we're talking about like some center nobody knows about who is in the trench is doing all the work, but he's getting no love. I feel like team dynamics could just be totally screwed up. Yeah. And I think that's a problem for every team on every single level, whether it be when you're little, like, uh, my parents have yes. more money than you, or I come from a better home or I do this. Okay. Now you make it in the pros. Now you're on a superstars team who's getting paid three times as much as you. And I mean, and they have a big head. It doesn't, you know, it's it's going to be the same at every single level. So for that to be a whole reason of why you can't uh, equally or pay compensate people for all the stuff they've put in is just, I mean, ridiculous. There's a ton of things, good and bad, you could bring up. But also I think a lot of former athletes are talking out because they don't really realize until after they graduate college that like, dang, like I really did so much work. I was like grind nonstop from six to eight all the time. And I was just putting my head down because that's just what I knew, you know, and then they get out and they're trying to become their own business people and uh, their own brand and all this stuff. And they're like, dang, I put in so much work and I got nothing for it. This free education, I'm barely using it. Like, I mean, not in all cases, but in a lot of the professionals that are speaking up. So I don't think you really realize everything until you're out of the situation and you're have to deal with contracts and agents and endorsements and all these things. And you're doing the same exact thing you were just doing in college, but now technically you're a year older. So now you get paid for it. Just kind of is like, well, what if I had four more years of doing exactly what I've already been doing, you know? Another interesting factor, though, is that kids are going to be able to hire agents, get support to help them find endorsement deals and benefit off of, you know, their own image. And I just think that that is definitely going to change, you know, our entire movement of amateur sports because having an agent, that completely revolutionizes the entire sports picture in college athletics. You need to be protected. Yeah, but you, you honestly, if you're going to get paid and it's an option, you need an agent. You need someone that's, that's should, should be looking out for your best interest that should say, Hey, this is your brand. This is the way you want to go. Or if it is, they'll point you in the right direction and uh, someone to really help lead the way and be like that intermediate between, uh, endorsements and, uh, getting paid so yeah right because college kids i mean how many times do people try to take advantage of you so you kind of need that protection i mean you're barely an adult at that point well i'm really excited to see what this bill uh has a show for i mean yeah there's already florida and ohio are already already jumping on it but it's interesting i wonder i mean i'm not sure Mm -hmm. i don't know the uh dirty details but because it doesn't go into effect until january 2023 that's over four years or no, three, that's over three years. So that's a long time. I mean, Florida is Florida is talking. Yeah, math's not my strong suit. Florida, Florida is talking sooner. But how is this going to affect recruiting? Like, Lauren, if you were a student athlete again back in the day, would you have stayed back in California at this point if you knew that you could benefit 
I know you're a female athlete, so it's a little bit different than you right. know the big male sports we're talking about. But would that have driven you towards staying in California? Um, it definitely. When I was growing, obviously, it wasn't even something you had to even consider. But now looking at it and uh, yeah, it's definitely a huge factor you'd have to consider. Um, yeah, because you've been working on your brand, your image, whether you know it or not, since you know you've been born. So to be able to be your full total self and uh, you know not have to worry about breaking rules or regulations or doing other things, just having that freedom feeling is definitely worth the conversation. 100%. Well, and so many kids have online presences already now because social media is already so big when these these athletes are in high school that they have such a big following. So some of them want to be influencers or be able to make money, you know, before even they go to college. I know like there are so many college, um, there are so many college athletes that have an influencer type presence. They've got hundreds of thousands of followers and they're doing these other sorts of things, like they're making videos or, um, you know, doing cool, perm- posting pictures that people like, not just for their, um, not just for their sport. And they're not able to benefit off of all of that digital um, revenue, which is obviously generating yeah. millions. And you know, it's another interesting point is um, what I just recently thought of is that there's a lot of international athletes that don't do not come to college sports because they're technically already being paid or they, they don't want to have to go through the hassle of be, like proving that they are technically professionals because you can go play NCAA sport. Maybe if you've played in a professional league over here, but you can't get any money over uh, food and rent basically like a right. very, very yeah. low end stipend. So, I mean, that would definitely increase the international presence in the NCAA. Oh, that's so true. Um, that's crazy. I mean, even yeah. to think about, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the NCAA championship in basketball, see ha- what happens in the college football playoff, because are kids going to want to win more or are they going to want to get paid more? What's going to be the more important factor when they choose where to go to school? Yeah, California was super smart to pass it first because it's going to, at least for the beginning of this whole ordeal be a huge advantage for recruiting in California. Yeah. Yeah. I agree in some aspects, but for other for certain sports, I'm not totally sure. I mean, because think about it, in football, Stanford's the only school that has really been successful in football in this past decade. USC is not the same USC that it was in the early 2000s. I mean, UCLA is nowhere near what it was, but like we we're talking about I'm California has the most national championships overall out of any state. I'm pretty sure I think it's Stanford, it goes Stanford, UCLA, and then I believe USC. Cal is somewhere in there as far as the top 10 or top 15. Um, so overall, yes, like the programs are very talented. It always they always have been good at recruiting. It's not just because of that obviously kids from all over the place want to just come to California because that's a big dream. But I I don't know. Like, I just think that what I just think it'll be interesting to see what happens during recruiting, because will the NCAA be so upset that they start to isolate the California schools? Will the Pac-12 be so upset that they, you know, ex-nay all of the California schools? You know, there are so many factors that we have to think about because it's either an advantage or disadvantage in a sense for these kids. Uh, I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen at all with NCAA because just in general, California, the minute they pass something, all the other States fall in line. So now not only is it 
NCAA going to be stuck fighting California. Now California's passed. Now NCAA should really be scared because dozens of other states will will follow will follow suit because that's what happens with everything. And they don't want to be the ones to fall behind, especially in this, because whether people like it or not, college sports are a huge factor, are a huge income for a lot of different things across the board, you know, and it's a huge tourist. Uh, I mean, think about, I know you're talking about the USC and UCLA and those schools haven't been super successful, but uh, maybe the players, I don't know if this is, but maybe down the line, they'll start to get maybe a percentage of ticket revenue sales and uh, the amount of jerseys sold, you know, they're going to be telling every single recruit that like, Hey, we're going to sell your Jersey. We're going to do this. Like a lot of kids are going to be upset because these universities are going to tell them everything they want to hear with this new bill of, Hey, we'll pay you for the likeness of your image and uh, all that stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects recruiting. Yeah. It'll be definitely interesting to see what the strategy is for the recruiters, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what they're going to be able to say and not say now legally, because obviously a lot of stuff has been going on behind closed doors for years. Yeah. And you did say that this bill is happening in three plus years. So I think a lot of student athletes are, are even confused a little bit right now. Like this bill passed and it seems like it's so great and all that stuff, but three years is kind of, I mean, not a super long time, but it's a significant amount that's of time. An entire, that's an entire college athlete's career. Right. So, I mean, these kids now are probably like, well, you know, the NCAA. They're probably like, pissed. Oh, yeah. Not only are they pissed, but like the rules are a little bit going to be very blurred, you know, from uh, what can we do and not do because this bill is being passed. This bill's already been passed. And uh, it just is unfortunate that it doesn't come into effect until 2023. But my plight is... There is such a beauty in college athletics because you are playing for the love of the game and for the love of your school. That's why college fans are so passionate about um, the sport that they attend. And I feel like we might lose a little bit of that. And I'm just playing devil's advocate here. But I think that that's going to go away a little bit because there's not that same kind of heart and fire that you see in the NFL, you see in the NBA. It's all flashiness and it's all, and I love it. It's great, but it's a completely different atmosphere when you turn to college stadiums, college courts, because, um, you know, it's, you, you're almost thinking back to when you were a kid and you're just playing because you love to do something. Yeah, no, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, I don't think it will necessarily be as, much as what you think because if you think about like a professional season baseball plays god they play so many games nba plays so many games and everyone says you know like oh i don't really watch till the till the playoffs or till this and that because people aren't trying well a college season's only three months you know these kids only get one chance home one chance away to play and beat a team and then the pack I mean the the tournament starts and you're one and done you know so it's not like these kids just all of a sudden aren't going to get any give any heart on the court for sure they're going to go balls to the wall for everything because now they're getting paid to and they have heart because it's what they've grown up doing that brings up a really good point and also could it affect maybe you know we were just talking about maybe these older NBA guys would have gone to college but could it keep guys longer you know what I mean some people who are on the fence between leaving or not and maybe they didn't have such a great junior senior season or in basketball whatever maybe it have been their first season and they should stay for another year just to improve their draft stock could it keep them you know one more season right yeah for sure well I mean 
no way you're going to get the money like you would from the pros out of the gates from this bill. But in, uh, I mean, quite some time we'll find out. But yeah, definitely at least keep, uh, keep them going or give some money to their families or whatever their reasoning may be to go pro. Um, at least some money will be in the equation for sure. I'm excited that there's movement, but I just feel like there's still so many kinks that we need to work out. Oh, for sure. And people, I think people are confused. Like, oh, everyone's going to get paid. And it's like, no, just. No, it's not. Like, it's, it's not as big of a deal. basically yeah. just going to set the superstars apart, which like to the rest of us who aren't those superstars, yeah, we can hate and it's going to suck, whatever. But those kids freaking deserve it, man. I mean, if they're the ones that worked that hard and went all the way and are superstars and scoring all the points, like, yeah, give them the money better than at least better than giving them to the universities and all this stuff. And I think for sure it will rebalance the power of the institution, you know, and at least force them to align athletes interests with uh, the money game, you know, totally. But I mean, like we were just talking about these other states have to follow suit or some sort of cohesive manner needs to come about because if all of a sudden the SEC schools don't fall in line, recruiting is just going to be yeah. like messed up yeah and those universities and things they have a lot of money a lot money, of money. Have yeah a lot of legislation power if they really wanted to do so in lobbying whatever bill to be passed realizing that it's going to mess up their recruiting in the future so as much as it's i would actually be very interested to see if they're pushing for it obviously the universities didn't ever want that. But now that California has passed that, now they pretty much have to get up at like out ahead of it, you know? So it's going to be very interesting to see uh, which states pass next and yeah. who's on board and who's not. Because if they don't, essentially California would have to start their own league. They would have to have their own champ- championships. They would have to have all their own tournaments. Like it would be in a completely different thing. Like I was saying and joking, California would be its own country. It's just ridiculous to think about if that would have to happen. Yeah. And Hopefully it won't. It's not an even playing field, right, you know? Right. I mean, hopefully it won't. And I don't think it will just because, I mean, it's good that the bill doesn't get passed for another couple of years because it gives all the other states time to get on board. So the NCAA is going to be, their hand's going to be forced on this one. So they're, it's going to be interesting. I'm excited to figure it out. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, So in just a second, we're going to be welcoming on a woman who is very impactful in the sport of tennis, Julie Heldman. And uh, we're going to be talking to her in just a moment. Well, right now I have joining me Julie Heldman, the one and only. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. It's such an honor. I'm excited to be here too, Bridget. Yeah, it's so great. Like I was telling you before, I've only gotten through about 100 pages of your book. It's such an interesting read, but... um really want to talk to you about how you got into tennis in the first place. I know that it was a family sport for you. You grew up into it, but uh, when did you first pick up a racket? I picked up a racket in 1954. My mother had started World Tennis Magazine in 53, and we moved from Houston to New York in 53. And she was so busy, she desperately needed me and my sister to be out of there. So she actually talked with Mrs. Jean Hoxie at Forest Hills, And they decided that uh, Mrs. Hoxie would start the first ever uh, tennis camp and that she would get free ads from World Tennis. And we got to go to Mrs. Hoxie's tennis camp for free. And I went there for seven summers. 
That is, I loved reading the stories about you there and even like bouncing the balls, splashing in the water and being barefoot. It's so real. It's such a cool way to really be with you there. You're, you're so, you get so into that in your book. It was such a wonderful thing to be a kid because most of the time I was not a right. kid. I would, my mother didn't really believe that children should be children. So the, 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 to be able to not just play tennis eight to 10 hours a day, every day throughout the summer, but to do something silly and fun and splashing. That was right. Fun. And cause tennis is a game. Yeah. Ultimately it's, it's a children's yeah. game. It should be fun. Um, when, when did you realize that tennis at some points wasn't fun and it felt a little bit more like a chore? Um, I think, you know, like a, most kids, what is, is, and you don't think is as good as it bad is what is it? It was always in, that I could be somebody if I won. And my mother was a highly narcissistic mother. And many of them choose a victim child. And I was that. So I came away from this mm-hmm. crazy childhood thinking I was the dummy and the loser. So when I could do something and hold on to it and win, that made me feel good. But there was never this fun thing. Fun was not part of how I grew up, but with some special lovely moments uh, that were the other otherwise. And it is, by the time I, when I was 19, um, I had my first or second encounter with bipolar disorder. And I did not know that until many years later, but I did know that everything stopped being possible. I completely fell apart. And uh, I I quit tennis when I was 20. I thought, I'll never go back to it again. It's too much pressure. It's too tough. And then I came back a year and a half later when I realized I was good enough that I could use my tennis racket to travel and see the world. That was really what I liked. What did you think you were going through at that time? Uh, I knew that I'd had a bad breakup with a boyfriend. I did not know um, how other people were. I'd been isolated as a child and as an adolescent. Uh, I was. I did very well. I went to Stanford in France uh, in 1964-65 and traveled after that. And then the following year, I also spent three months overseas traveling. And I was a terrible emotional mess. But I was in Europe, and I played on red clay, and very few women had. And the Federation Cup was held in Italy on red clay. And Nancy mm-hmm. Ritchie couldn't come, so they said, Julie, you're here, play. And I was thrilled. And Billie Jean played number one for the U.S. I played number two. And then Billie Jean and, and Carol Caldwell Gravener played uh, the double. So it was three, it was, you had to win two out of three matches. And I won all my matches. Mm-hmm. And every night I'd go into my room and be flooded with suicidal thoughts. Get up in the morning, slap my leg, go out, play a tough match. And I had no idea that was like weird or different. These things. Right. Because, you thought everybody was going through the same thing. or And that, you know, was this somehow something that needed to be helped? Well, my, normally I would have mm-hmm. gotten medical care through my mother who believed that all doctors were evil. So um, that mm-hmm. was not an option. I did not get any help from my parents. I didn't tell anybody. 
like anybody else who was going through fairly significant mental illness, I was uh, ashamed. I was, it's a stigma. You're not supposed to feel this way. And so I, it, it was, and my upbringing, the, the way I was treated as a child, nobody knew that was a big secret. So I had this combination of childhood trauma and bipolar. I was diagnosed when I was 50 with bipolar. Wow. And I did not know until then. And until I started getting help from a therapist in my 20s, my mid to late 20s, um, I did not know that life could have been different. Your mom never hugged you. She never showed you affection. How did nobody yeah. else recognize that, especially when you spent so much time with the other players on the circuit? Yeah, I think I also was pretty good at masking things. Um, I wasn't at, When I was around my mother at a tournament, about the only time that happened was at the U.S. Championships at Forest Hills. Okay. And uh, it was like normal. There was no, I wasn't being abused there. Nobody saw anything. I've written this book. I've come out. I've told everybody this. I have not found anybody who knew that this was happening. That's unbelievable. But that's the scary thing is that, you know, we'll get yeah. into this a little bit later, but so many yeah. of athletes in all different sports are going through, you know, similar things where they're not able to talk to anybody and all of their teammates have yeah. no idea what's right. going on. It's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, and once you started going through a lot of rough stuff, you do learn to hide. And you learn to look happy. Can't keep it up very long. <laughs> you call what she possessed on you the, the cult of Gladys. Yeah. So what was the cult? Well, the reason I call it a cult is it was not. Here's what it was not. It was not a, 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 a kind of wacko religious sect. But it was, it had many of the features, including an incredibly powerful leader, the need to um, everybody else to be submissive and never to go up against her. And, um, and that when there was conversation, she was the one doing the conversation and everybody else listened. It could well be, I, I don't know for sure, that she too was bipolar. And then by the time the conversations okay. were going, she was she self-medicated with alcohol. So it could, could be right. that what was going oh on was a combination of things. But there was, you know, there was a rule that she had for me and my sister, never say anything to the outside world. And my father wow. never either acknowledged it, nor was he in any way helpful when bad things went on. He too had his position, and she was the leader. Do you think he enabled her? In many ways, yes. Why were you chosen as the victim child then, instead of over your sister? My sister was the firstborn. She was very quiet, quite calm. And brilliant. My mother took great joy in teaching her things. I came along and I was sickly, crying, and all of that would be annoying to my mother. So it was like kind of, mm -hmm. but then, then there came, became some stuff that came up. I don't quite know how it was, but it was like between my mother and my sister, they both went after me when I was little. 
to either make me feel stupid or lots of stuff. I had really a really very useful mm-hmm. mechanism, though, starting when I was very young, seven, I'd say. I learned that if I did a lot of for my mother, that that was that would be during that period of time, it would be self-protective. So I cooked her dinner and I brought her scotch. And at that, that, that worked. It did not work long term. I mean, it didn't have a, a lasting effect. But she, she did know that I was the one who was doing things. So many people saw Gladys Heldman as the, wom- as the woman who revolutionized women's tennis. And you protected that reputation for her, in a sense. Why did you continue I to actually, do that? I, I completely believe it. I believe she was that important. I, I believe that women's tennis would not have had a strong beginning without her. And the foundation that she developed was extraordinary. And the fact that she stood up for the women players against the men in the associations who wanted to harm us. I don't think anybody but my mother could have done it. If somebody else started doing, you know, tournaments here and there and the other, who knows what would have happened, but it could not have been better than what my mother did. And she was brilliant and she was effective and she was generous to the tennis player. So walk me through then that moment when she really changed things and decided to make you guys your own league, get you guys the Virginia Slims tour and prepare the steps for the WTA. What was that moment like for you? Everything blew up big time in 1970. Uh, Money came into all of tennis. Open tennis started in 1968. And it wasn't until 1970 that it became clear that the men were trying to keep the women from succeeding, from making money. And this is not me being being hyperbole. This was no, very... I I know exactly. It, what was the ratio? There was some crazy ratio, right, yeah. between the prizes of, that the men were getting versus the women. Yes, it was um, the very tournament that made this revolution come about was in Los Angeles in 1970. Yeah. In August, the, the tournament was to be held in September, a couple of weeks after. Um, the U.S. Open, but they announced the prize money that it would be eight to one in favor of the men. There was no prize money for women in the first and second yeah. round, and some it was um, it was being run by somebody who should have known better, Jack Kramer, the great person in the tennis world. He's an incredibly important person in the tennis mm-hmm. world. And he basically... Yeah, he's a huge name. Yeah, and he had been on the outside because he'd run the pro tour. But he viewed, he said, what he said publicly was that women, uh, people wouldn't pay money to watch women play. And therefore, there was no reason to give them um, much prize money at all. But um, so my mother went to him, go back a step. Once that announcement was made about that prize money, the eight to one, the women really started getting very upset. Billie Jean and Rosie had been um, signed with a, as a contract pros for two years, and now they were mm-hmm. without any money. Okay. There was no money coming in. Yeah. That, other than what my mother put into prize money, 
on behalf of her magazine, World Tennis, that year, the women's prize money, there was a total of $5,000 in prize money before September. Nothing. So what happened was Billie Jean, Rosie, and Nancy Ritchie uh, asked my mother to sit down with them, and they had lunch with her uh, during Forest Hills, the U.S. Open. And she said, okay, Mm -hmm. see what I can do. Within a week or so, she put together a tournament mm-hmm. in Houston, where she and my father were moving to. And um, right, she went to Jack Kramer, and she said, are we going to be okay? We want to have to get a sanction. Will you uh, oppose it? Oh, no, said he. I'm not that kind of guy. He was that kind of guy. And we found out, because the night before the tournament was to start, the uh, some USLTA official started calling every woman who was to play in Houston, telling them that if she played, that they would be, that she'd be suspended. My mother put together, right. and she, she'd obviously thought this one through beforehand, realizing these guys were squirrely. And so she signed a contract with every single one of the women who were playing for $1 <laughs> for one week. And the reason for the contract mm-hmm. was that so we wouldn't be under the auspices of the USLTA. And so they couldn't hurt us, though they were trying to. And um, I was not going to play. I had a bad arm. I wasn't, uh, I was in bad emotional conditional condition. And though nobody knew that. And I, when I heard that they were all standing together. I just said, I want to stand up too. And I said, I will play one point so mm-hmm. that, that I will be, if to be in solidarity and if they get suspended, so will I. At that stage, I was ranked five in the world. So it wasn't an empty yeah. offer. It was real. And um, right. the tournament went off. Oh, at, oh, I forgot to say at the very first meeting of the, when it was the $1 contract, my mother said, and oh, by the way, I have a major sponsor. And that was Virginia Slims. Right. And Virginia Slims, I believe that she knew in advance that she needed to do that. And she'd set it all up. But what happened then was the tournament went off fine. And she immediately started um, setting up other tournaments. And within a month, she had something like eight or ten tournaments already set up for 1971. We were in an interesting situation, too, I mean, because wow. we went to bed with the devil to get a Virginia Slims in, a cigarette company for, an, for women athletes. But they had money <laughs> right. to spare because um, there was a, a Congress had passed a law saying that after January 2 of 1971, no cigarette advertising on TV. So they were looking for a place what? to connect. Oh, my gosh. So we were at the right place at the right time with the right people. And one of the right people, of course, was Billie Jean. And as the tour got going mm-hmm. in 1971, she just rose to an incredible height. She kept winning. She was charismatic. She was great with the press. So it was my mother, Billie Jean, and Virginia Slims, and that made it happen. It was that marriage. But then what really made her famous and you guys uh, being there was the Battle of the Sexes match with Bobby Riggs. I read I read in your book that you you said you couldn't watch it or something, but were That's were right. you there still? No, I didn't go. Okay, so so you weren't there. Okay, why 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 couldn't you watch it? Uh, two weeks before the King Riggs match, I beat Billie Jean King at four hills, and she walked off the court 
and four right. one down in the third, uh, saying if you because uh, I she there was a rule that was being broken. You know, you have a one minute changeover every time the change ends, and uh, the the umpire was just waiting and waiting. So I I said, is the one minute up yet? And the Billie Jean took her racket, flung it as hard as she could at the uh, the, 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 the 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 case for um, sodas, and said, "You want the back batch that sorry, you want the match that badly, you can have it." So everybody, all of the press was saying, "You know, what kind of an evil thing did I do right. to make her quit?" They blamed you instead of wondering what was going yep. on with her. You know, there were a lot of things were going on with her. I cannot imagine living under the kind of pressure she was living under at that era. Absolutely. Right, I yeah. But totally. it, it didn't it it didn't make me exactly want to rush out and cheer for her. I didn't want her to lose. Right. I just wasn't particularly interested in uh, getting being there. Yeah, but all of your your teammates, people you'd you know played with before, uh, were at that match. Your mom was there, right? Yeah. Yes. At that time. So um, after. Billie Jean beat Bobby. How did things change for all of you guys as professionals? Um, it certainly, I mean, the amount of press, the amount, I mean, it wasn't just, oh, this is a tennis match. Unless you lived through it, you wouldn't. Everybody, oh, yeah. the street corner, they weren't talking about politics. They were talking about Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, men versus women, men saying right. that women are nothing and we'll show them. Yeah, and the chauvinist pigs and gosh. But she showed him. And she shut people up, and it was huge. And she became extraordinarily famous and remains so to this day. And, you know, she earned it. She wow. deserves it. I don't think people realized how bad women had it at, at that point in time because, you know, so many people are still protesting, you know, for certain things today. But when you think back to not very long ago, it was just a different time. Well, you know, people talk about, and rightfully now, equal yes. pay. We were talking about getting anything at all. I know. Exactly. That's what I mean. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so it was, it was, we were foundational in many ways to all of women's professional right. sports. We, we, we had a, a great bunch of things happening and we fought our hearts out for, for ourselves and for the future of women's mm-hmm. tennis. So when you watch women play today, take some of the most famous players like Venus and Serena and you see them out there even with their flashy advertisements and you know the beautiful the beautiful (laughs) outfits that they're wearing from um, huge sponsors what do you take from that believe it or not some level of pride we started all of that and I'm thrilled that whatever they can get that's great you know and, and we're all human we all do things well and badly and whatever, and everybody has her own story. But I think, you know, the, the Williams sisters who were in their prime were the best ever. And um, they're now... But they've also come from an abusive background. Yes. Different. We all have different abuses. <laughs> Mine was one very important factor about the kind of abuse I had around tennis was that my mother was somebody who, and my father should have known a lot about tennis and thought Mm -hmm. they did, but they undermined me. My mother, particularly not my father so much, undermined me in that I win something and I was 
12. When the Canadian 18 and under is, and my mother, I come home and my mother says, you're ugly, cut your hair off. But it was not inconsistent that she was undermining. And the Williams father, who always looked pretty yeah. gloomy to me, was also in some ways a tennis genius. Yeah. He figured a way that women's tennis would go forward, and then he made it happen. But uh, in, in very different ways, he was a difficult tennis parent. Yeah. Do you look at parents in sports these days and see not similarities to your mom, but, um, you know, worry a little bit about how they're handling children under pressure of, you know, and under pressure situations in really competitive yeah. sports? I do worry about that. And it's impossible for me to know sitting so far away. but. Um, I think that this intense push on winning is misplaced. Mm-hmm. It may make people into terrific tennis players, but what are they like? I mean, I, one thing about Richard Williams, he always said you, you don't have to play, you play tennis all the time or tournaments all the time. You need to do other things in life. And I think it's, it's kind of rare that that does happen. And I think there's other instances of things that happen. There's one really terrific tennis player now who's doing really well. And I think her parents have become money hungry or so I've been told. Mm. And what is that? Instead of thinking about, oh, let's go out and have a good uh, hit or let's go play well or let's go practice. It's how many millions of dollars? What are you, what are you going to give me? And I can't even think sport, sport in general has been taken over by money a lot and that sort of doesn't really work it doesn't compute for me entirely why and the thing that we wanted to have happen has its limitations on when it when it relates to the kids (laughs) who are trying to get and especially these players who are playing professionally they are setting examples for these children and i don't really know how positive that is most of the time nowadays right and uh, i i agree and there are it, it, the rare few who seem to have a balanced life i personally have a crush on city pass <laughs> it seems to have a balance but uh, it, it's hard to do that it really is but more and more players now just like you are coming out ex- talking about their mental health struggles, talking about depression, talking about things that they have hidden for such a long time on and off the court. But they're able to deal with these things now because, you know, the NFL, the NBA are getting smarter about having psychologists on staff. Um, how, do you, how do you think that would have changed things for you back in the day when you were still playing? Oh, so very difficult to say because I wasn't living in the current era. There were no medicines for bipolar. It was hard. People did not yet understand a lot of the uh, the, the impact of childhood trauma. You know, it, it, it's um, if I had lived in a different era, I'd have been a different person. Maybe I'd have I would have a different mother. I don't know. I can only know what I know. Do you think that if things had been different with your mother? later in life, do you, would you have felt comfortable approaching her and telling her how much 
she affected your life in such a negative way? I don't think there was even the vaguest possibility of doing that ever. I could not have written the book until after she died because she was unable to accept that kind of responsibility. So she would not communicate with you in that way? No. And this is, she also was uh, somebody who, um, as I said much earlier, she thought doctors were evil and most of the things that they gave you were all bogus. And um, and I think the biggest problem is she could not see that she had done harm. She would have just thought there was something that was bad in me to be accusing her. And that did actually happening. I, I had a child, my, my daughter, Amy, when I was 41. So I was pregnant when I was 40. And I, I'd been talking to her much. But I called, called her up. I warned her I'd be calling. I called her up and said, you know, I'm, I'm pregnant. This is the only grandchild she'd ever have. And she said, uh, I'm late for dinner. Sorry, got to go. And then during the last six months of my pregnancy, she did not talk to me because I had showed annoyance with her. So she would not have gotten anything. And this is the very same person who was so incredibly important in women's right. tennis. That's in part part right. of the confusion. Do you think, again, and, and, and I mean, I know you spoke before that you think that she struggled with some sort of mental illness, but do you think that that brought on signs that she could have had bipolar disorder? There were some signs. Um, you know, you think of if she was in a manic state that she would be talking very, very fast and that uh, ideas would come tumbling out and she could... Uh, and she did that, uh, I, I, but it's impossible to mm-hmm. know because I wasn't sitting there. But this is a woman who uh, got her magazine out mm-hmm. on time every single time, and that usually meant the last two to three days of the month before needing to send the, the magazine to the printer that she didn't sleep. It's like she got her best work done when she was in that manic state. Yeah. Mania can be uh, wonderful before it blows out of control. Do you ever think that she had some sort of little voice in her head before she decided to end her life that she had wronged you? Or, I mean, because otherwise, if she was such a strong woman, why would she decide to take her own life? Well, a lot of taking her own life had to do with her hatred and fear of doctors she thought, 81, and she thought she'd had a heart attack. So she decided she wanted to end it before ever having to go to a hospital. And the truth is that she had all of her uh, arteries to her heart were blocked. Two at 95%, two at 85%, and one at 65%. She was probably right. But it was her incredible fear and her need to be in control of her own life that got her to go that way. I do not think, actually, that that was a bipolar thing, although a lot of people with bipolar struggle with suicide and death. I don't think that that was what was happening. I think it was her kind of um, strange view about the medical system. I will tell you one thing, though. Um, I had a breakdown that started in the year 2000 and lasted for nearly 15 years. Once it started, um, 
my husband, Bernie, called my mother and said, okay, this is not going well here. Julie's not doing it all well. And for the first time in my life, she started calling me to ask me how I was, what was happening. And that uh, was, you know, if only I'd had that other times, I didn't. But it was wonderful when it happened. What did you feel at that point in your life? It was hard to feel much during that breakdown. I was largely non-functional for large periods of time. Um, I was very happy that my mother was not harming me. I was also happy that she was really trying. There certainly was a part of me that said, oh, if only she had been that and way How old before. were you at this point? Uh, 54. So at age 54, that was the first time in your life that she ever tried to be somewhat of a mom. Yes. And I was grateful for that. In fact, it happened for a very interesting reason. She was living in, my parents moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she had her own indoor tennis court. And there was a pro there named Claudia Montero, who became my mother's friend and her coach. And Claudio, who was a good 20 years younger than my mom, maybe more, um, became like a mother figure to her and, and showed her love and, and helped her in her tennis and her life and her convert. And somehow I believe, I truly believe that Claudia became the first real mother my mother ever had. She grew up in a situation where there wasn't a lot of mothering right. herself. She, yeah, she never had a mother who hugged her either. Didn't, no. And so I felt good for her that she felt some of those things. She was happy in Santa Fe. And you sought out mother figure, mother sort of figures when you were a kid as well, right? Yeah, there were there were some times, but for not much opportunity. There would maybe for a week here or a week there. Um, I. Um, my childhood really was about doing everything I could to succeed in school and at tennis. And that was how I could, that's how I could survive. But there must have been a blurred line between succeeding and happiness. There wasn't happiness out of that. There might have been the occasional happiness on winning a big match, on hitting a great forehand. But it was what I would call happiness now. Okay, now's the time to get out your phone and download the QuickTrack app. QuickTrack is the best way to protect yourself and your services. You don't need to be a lawyer to understand all the legal jargon. QuickTrack takes care of it for you. So you can create and sign a contract all on your mobile device. Takes less than 60 seconds. I use it every day in my own business. Go download the QuickTrack app today free from the App Store. And for all you college athletes out there who are going to be getting paid in the next couple of years, you're going to need a way to protect yourself. QuickTrack is going to be your best friend. Download the QuickTrack app today in the App Store for free. Q-U-I-K-T-R-A-C-T, QuickTrack. All right, back to the show. Later in your life, I mean, you, you did leave tennis and you did a couple of things. You went to law school and you got into broadcasting. So when was it at that point? I, I know then you had that breakdown, but when was it at that point that you just realized 
that your life wasn't what you wanted it to be. I guess I never really realized that. I just went as hard as I could at everything I touched. And um, eventually I would find dead ends and turn in another direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't like a conscious choice. Oh, I'm going to change my life. Unfortunately, I had to kind of wait until I fell apart. Yeah. And I think so many, like I said, so many athletes are dealing with that today, though. The transition out of the game is so difficult. I love to talk to people on this podcast about that. Um, How are you able now to really relate back or really get back into the tennis world when so you have so many negative memories on the court? Um, Gently is the question, is the answer. Um, I've gone to a couple of tennis tournaments this year. Right. I know. I saw like you went, you got out to the BNP Paribas earlier this year in yep. February. Was that your first yep. public outing for a while? Yeah. Um, we went to, uh, in 2012, there was an, um, uh, the, the, the original nine got back together at the family circle. But that was sort of not, there was a little bit in the tennis world. The, uh, now the the Indian Wells that was huge. It was a very big tournament, and I, I don't uh, do so well with a, a huge amount of people around. That's something I'm just kind of arm's length about. My husband and I went to Wimbledon this year. Wow, and good we, for you. We were there. Yeah, and it it still looks like Wimbledon. All the changes they uh-huh. made, it still looks like Wimbledon. But I realized that uh, I had played Wimbledon I think nine times. And I, about six of those times, there had been serious, difficult issues for me, and thing or another. So I just went gently and, and, let, and let the emotions wash in on me that here. And it was kind of like I ended up having a terrific time. But I didn't spend a lot of time on the grounds watching matches. I was kind of a little wary. You're removed enough where it's it's safe enough for you to mm-hmm. be able to see it and feel it where you're not endangering yourself. Yeah, and um, the fact that I'm able to go out into the tennis world these days is uh, in part, you know, I'm doing it in part because of the I wrote, wrote the book and in part because I know in large part because my husband has come with me and he's been there to be gentle and kind and supportive and it's made a huge difference. So that's been, uh, I've been, I'm pretty thrilled that all of that happened. So writing the book was a form of therapy for you. Yeah. It was because everything had been so hidden in my life. And because my mother looked like this terrific figure, which she was in the outside world, it was, it felt like I needed to say it. I needed to explain my truth. And I, it, it took me four solid years of writing it. And, and it was every bit of it I loved. And I wrote, I, got, I tore it up. I wrote, I, I rewrote. Yeah, you're a great writer. I, I mean, I've got to say, sometimes, you know, athletes will get out there and, and write a book. And, you know, it's it, it's great or it sounds conversational, but you're a brilliant writer. I love your style and the little anecdotes. Yeah. It's wonderful. But it feels 
that, that's sort of the human side of it, telling stories. It's sort of back from the days when we were uh, 100,000 years ago, we wandered from one place to the next. We told stories. Yeah. No, that's so true. So when was it that you woke up and decided, gosh, I got to get my story on paper and spread it out to the world? So the breakdown happened in 2000. About a year later, I decided, I want to write something. So I took a class in the local college in short story writing. But I realized that I did not want to write fiction. I wanted to write uh, truth. Or whatever. And um, so when I started writing that first, uh, in those first classes, because I took classes for about four or five years after that, uh, some of those, two or three of those chapters are in the book right now. But I did not have the energy that it is required to sit down and write a whole book. And I didn't have the emotional wherewithal. But I had some help with a change in meds uh, about 2010, and I had more energy, and I went after, as I said, I I sat down and wrote about four chapters, like boom, 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 boom. And I I ran into a few roadblocks. I got stage one breast cancer. I got... um, a significant problem as a side effect from one of the drugs I've been taking for 10 years. So it was, it, it was, I had to kind of step aside for a moment. And, and um, then uh, in 2012, I was, I went, I wrote a speech for when we, when my mother was being honored at uh, and I wrote a speech, and I was thrilled. And I had people who would read it for me. This and then I just, I, and I read it in front of 200 people, and people at the end rose to cheer. And I was just absolutely thrilled. But um, it was still a while to go because about six months after that, I basically had a further crash. It was within the 15-year period, but it was I was getting better, and then boom. And so it took me a couple of two, three years after that to get back on my feet enough to write. So, again, I mean, I, some funny things happen when I sent uh, Joel Drucker, who's a tennis historian. I sent him one of the chapters I'd written, and he said, oh, that's a great chapter, but you got the score wrong. It was about a match. And I went, oh, oh. I figured I knew it. I had the score in my head, right? Wrong. <laughs> So I learned that I had to do a lot of research. Yeah, yeah. So I happened to live moderately close to the UCLA library. So the UCLA, UCLA library and I communed. And I could take okay. out a couple of volumes at once in order to then, and then write about those and then and go on. And then when it came towards the end of the book, no, you didn't, well, before I got to the end, um, I think it was Joel himself. He said, you know, you could put a little bit more emotion in this. And then I began to think about what he was saying and what he meant. And things began to change a lot at that stage. And it, it, a friend who was a tennis player, Cynthia Derner, said to me, because I said, I'm thinking about writing about mental illness. And she said, oh, do, do. There's so many people out there who have it too. Go for it. And then I started that, that also became a stage of it where and what has ended up happening 
is that tennis players are reading the book, but some people who are not tennis players who have struggled with mental illness are realizing that I've been honest and open and that they too could become honest and open. Because sometimes people, it's just too scary for people to tell what's going on, the stigma, the fear. And I've come to a place where I'm not afraid about that now. And I'm hoping others will have their own way of getting there. Definitely. I mean, I definitely think that we are getting to that place, but it takes one person to pave the path. And for so many people, you are that one person. If they read your book, you can give them the strength to come out and speak their truth. And realize that when people want to do that, it, that it may actually open up your life. Yeah. And look at me. I mean, I wrote the book and I was open about it. And I am I said, I, doing the That's best incredible. emotionally that I've ever had in my life. That's really, truly amazing. Yeah. Um, I just, I commend you. Um, jumping in to a little entertainment question. When I, I actually rewatched the movie Battle of the Sexes before I talked to you because um, I thought it was such a funny movie when I first watched it. And I just was so curious about... How much of it was so realistic, you know, because it's about Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King playing each other. And I know you said you weren't at the match, but um, but but you you were somebody played you. So that's that's kind of cool. And it was such a well done movie. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, what you thought of the Hollywood depiction of your mother's journey and um, the way that you guys you guys all paved the way for women. In sports. Well, I think they did a damn good job with showing tennis in the movies because it's usually really badly done. This is not badly done. Well yeah. done. Yeah. And I thought that Emma Stone and Steve Carell in particular were wonderful. Oh, yeah. I think the rest of it was highly fictionalized. My mother could, was, was about 180 degrees off from what they showed. That's what I wanted to know. So they have Billy Jean and my mother going to a men's club and meeting Jack Kramer, who is in uh, uh, a tuxedo. Okay, He's, I don't think he was ever in a men's club in his life. And, and, uh, but then, you know, Billie Jean <sighs> is, they're talking and Billie Jean, which is Emma Stone, says, uh, as they leave, we're going to have to start a, a tour. And, it, and Sarah, Silverson, Sarah Silverman, who plays my mother, says, uh, really? Uh, it, it's Billie Jean who's doing the right, whole thing, yeah. and my mother is uh, it, um, following after her. Uh, it's just what, this is not what Yeah, happened. she's like the sidekick. This isn't even close. My mother was... Okay. I mean, so what really happened? Powerhouse. What really happened is Billie Jean, Nancy, Rosie came to my mother and said, help. She said, okay, I'll start a tournament. So she started the tournament, and the moment the tournament went well and became clear that everybody was going to be attacked by the men who ran tennis, then we had to have our own tour. That's the reality. And Billie Jean wanted her husband to run the tour. He was 27 years old. He was a good guy for all I know, but he didn't really have any experience in any of this. And my mother had done me promotions including running forest hills and she had 
she had um wow she knew everybody and she had the sponsor so there was never a thought that that was a possibility the fact that my mother but he approached you guys right larry yes yes he did and um my mother was this incredible powerhouse in the business world but when it came to emotional matters she tended to fall apart so when Larry and uh, came to my parents' house after the end of the Houston tournament, saying that he wanted to replace her running women's tennis, and the women could vote. So I went out from the meeting room to see my mother, and I said, he says, you should come in and explain what you would do. And she became so frantic, so scared that she couldn't do anything. I can't do it. I can't do it. You'll have to do it for me. So I went in and uh, I talked on my mother's behalf. Really? So it's, 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 it, it was um, an extraordinarily difficult situation. And I had no time to think about it. So, um, but, you know, there was enough people who knew what my mother had done, and I talked about it, about what she had done. I mean, there's some things. In 1962, the U.S. Championships at Forest Hills was totally fall, falling apart, and the USTA, USLTA was doing terribly. It wasn't, wasn't doing anything about it, and all the best players were not coming to this country. They were playing in Europe. So my mother got together with nine other people, put up the money, to charter a jet to bring the players in. So this is not something that some woman who says, oh, really? That's not my mother. It's the woman amazing. who did things. Oh, my gosh. It's just so funny to hear the way you say it compared to what you watched yeah. in the movie. And you know, look further along. In 1968 was the first uh, U.S. Open at Forest Hills. 1969, mm. my mother was before... At the end of the 1968 tournament, my mother said it was horribly run, and she wrote about it in um, World, World Tennis. So she went behind the scenes and got a tournament director, got a tournament CEO, and he went and got CBS TV. So this was not some little woman who says, oh, really? It's a woman who did things in a big way. Right. Yeah. And she had no experience in journalism before, right? Nope. She was. Um, oh my gosh! She just decided she was going to do it. Yeah. Some of her stuff was a little wacky. Some of it was fun. Some of it was, you know, very good details. But it was it was very unique. And maybe because she never learned from anybody else. <laughs> Sometimes that's how the best stuff happens. Yeah. Really. That's so funny. Um. So where can people find your book? Ah. Well, there's exciting news today, but I will tell you later. Oh. They can, uh, find My Book is on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle. But as of today, the audiobook is on. <gasps> I recorded yes. it myself. You did. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 this is not an easy thing to do. No. It's not a short book. It took me probably 50 hours in the studio. Oh, my gosh. And I I can't do more than three hours in a row, so there's a lot of days and hours, yeah. and you know, it takes. But it was it was a, a, that was a labor of love, and it was a lot to learn. Yeah, I didn't. 
but uh, I got to read my own book. Yeah. I love that. It makes such a difference when the author is the one reading. Oh my gosh. It just you you can feel you can feel the passion and the story really come through. I love audiobooks for, you know, long long car rides and road trips and right. I'm excited that's going to be great. I'm going to have to get on that. So, when does the audiobook come out? Is it actually today? Uh, today. I got notified by Audible that it's ready to go nice. on. Oh, my gosh. That's so great. Oh, I can't wait. That's so fun. Um, well, is there anything else that you wanted to say to our listeners? Well, the other thing is that I was uh, quite a tennis player. Oh, yeah, you were. So, I mean, I wasn't just I – mean, I spent a lot of years on the tour, and um, tennis was so much in my blood. My parents talked about tennis at the dinner table. My they they talked about tennis all the time, so that tennis, even though whether it was not, it wasn't pure fun. It wasn't a lot of things, but it was part of me. And um, when I eventually left the tennis world, I think that's when I started working harder and harder and harder, because it was it was um. I, I was missing a piece of who I had been. But it was really very who I had been. I mean, all those uh, hours on the tennis court and all those conversations and all that, it was, uh, it becomes a, a part of you. Uh, I said I played Wimbledon nine times. I played the U.S. Championships. I was in the U.S. Open 14 times. I played the first when I was 14 years old. So, so it's... Um, it's it's yet even more interesting that here I am doing something new that I love, and that's writing. Well, and, and you wrote something in your book. I can't remember what you said. You said I was a good tennis player, but I wasn't great. But I, that's not true. You were number two in the world. I mean, in sorry, in the country, and number five in the world. Th- that's pretty unbelievable. That was true. Well, that's I was. I was when I came to California in 1977, and I saw they had um, uh-huh. a vanity license plate, I decided I should have that said X near great. But, um, <laughs> I think that in in doubles, I was definitely not great. In singles, there were days when I w- could play great. Enough that I did well enough. Do you think den- tennis was almost a distraction for you to escape? from your mental illness? Mm, yes, but it was also part of me. Every time I tried to go away, I yeah. came back to it. So it was something that I had to, well, I didn't know how to balance it. I wrote one phrase, what um, tennis for me was like straddling a razor's edge, razor's edge, damned if I won, and damned if I lost. Um, yet, I needed to feel like I could win, yet I could not want to be or try to be the best. It's sort of like a, a very complex matrix, and all of us have those matrices. I just happen to be around the tennis world. Right. You have a love-hate relationship with the sport, but it's so yeah. incredible that you've overcome this feat and you're able to be associated with the game now again yeah yeah that's really incredible it's amazing and a huge accomplishment you should feel so proud and it's a joy to find the people for whom there was a spark of friendship and then that that those those sparks have kindled now 
that's lovely. Thank you so much, Julie, for joining us today. It was so great having you and um, can't wait to finish your book. Thank you so much, Bridget. It has been a great pleasure for me. I truly appreciate it. Such an inspiring episode, an incredible woman. Go get her book today. Next week, we're going to be talking to Ayele Ford, a good friend of mine from college who played football at the University of Oregon. But that does not even begin to describe who he is. He's an incredible artist, has started his own business since leaving the Ducks. And he'll give us his take on the new Fair Play to Play app. And we'll have all more sports news coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you never miss an episode of After Orange Slices. So many exciting things coming up this holiday season. You will not want to miss an episode. Stay up to date with the latest in Major League Baseball with the End of the Shift Baseball Podcast. Are you tired of the same old way baseball writers complain about the new changes in the game? Well, this is not the show for you. The End of the Shift Podcast with a modern take on what makes baseball great. And the ball will be hit into the shift. They get an out. It's only because of that shift. And they do. And that's why you follow the numbers. Join co-hosts Max Gross and Kyle McAravey for weekly updates every Sunday night. Or find us on Twitter at Into the Shift Pod. It's the Into the Shift Baseball Podcast.